Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutenteg, with Mishpachal Homefront, covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. Shavua Kals. And a good luck to you. So, firstly, Sam, let me just uh, share with you as we begin kind of our Sunday look at the week ahead. Some just a short conversation that I had and some good news I had on Friday night. So here in Big Chemish, we've just about three minutes down the road from me at a local basketball court school area. We've had for the last month, a whole squad of people that are of home front. Well, actually, these are the people who share a name with basically the name of our podcast. And they've been in the area and hanging outside the local schools and keeping security room. The main job has been to be there in case there's a rocket, you know, there's, there's rocket strike in built up areas and Beit Shemesh, they can be on the spot. So a WhatsApp message went around before Shabbos, you can come to Kabbalah Shabbos with the soldiers, etc., which was a very nice thing. It turns out there was lots of local enthusiastic Ramat Beit Shemesh residents, but uh, not one soldier as far as I could see. And the reason for that was because from the original 50 or 60 of them, they'd been drawn down to about 15. And I had a conversation with the head one. He told, told me he's Dima, originally from Belarus, and he was a Russian with a sense of humor because I said, it must be very difficult for you away from your family. He kind of gave me this quirky smile. He said, no, I'm Russian. We don't have emotions. And so it was good to see the jokes in all time. But the main point was that he says that we're down 15 from a few dozen and we may not be here next week. And the reason is because there are thankfully less and less rocket attacks. I think that that's both our good news of the day and also a bit of strategic um, insight into what's actually going, that there's a very real impact that we've noted from the fact that they've almost taken over North Gaza, which is the Hamas's major stronghold. And long with their continue, it's, it seems to be working. It does seem that we've degraded their ability to fire rockets, although there are still some firings. Just on my own, I, I went to a different shul in Yerushalayim than I normally go to on uh, Leil Shabbos. But when I walked in, I was surprised to see a soldier in uniform with a automatic weapon on him. Uh, I know that there's plenty of people in this neighborhood because we live uh, very near the U.S. Embassy. And also that's right on the border of the Green Line between uh, the former East Jerusalem from 1967 and uh, West Jerusalem. So uh, you know, people are still on their guard, which is good. I'm happy to hear that in Beit Shemesh, things are winding down and they have, they feel that there's less risk. I wouldn't say we're out of the woods yet. I mean, we'll get used to the sight of these people with weapons because one of the major failings and one of the major takeaways from the war has been that what they call the Kitot Kononut, which are the neighborhood response teams meant to be armed. They'd been across the country, started weapons and training systematically by an army that said, no, we'll deal with it and you don't have to and don't give civilians weapons, etc." And this was the tragedy in places like the Kibbutzim around in the Gaza envelope region that they literally, even former special forces soldiers who I talked to had had their guns taken away a couple of years before. And what we've seen immediately, one as of a couple of weeks ago, I saw the statistic that 600 new Kibbutz Kononut had to local defense forces have been formed and many of them armed far more heavily. And it's a sign of how worried Israelis are and how little faith there is in the army that these local defense teams were requesting heavy weaponry, such as spike anti-armor missiles, which of course are not going to be granted to them. But the idea that this could even be reported in newspapers would have struck someone as a broom joke, you know, six weeks ago. And that's no, unfortunately no longer the case. But Binyama, what I did want to talk about, I think just to give a sense of where we're holding and where this week could take us, 
So I think a striking picture that we're seeing now is outside the hospitals in Gaza, we know that there are IDF tanks parked over there. And so much so, I think that, you know, last night the IDF spokesman was saying that the one entrance, east entrance of the Shiva hospital is open, Israelis are free to go in and out of that. It, it, it's almost absurd. And it gives a sense that soon, if you want an appointment at Shiva hospital, you're going to have to ring up the IDF spokesman to get it. They'll be managing the inpatient department over there. That's the level at which the Israeli presence is on the ground. And what I take away from this, Benjamin, is the oldest idea in the book, which is that facts are created on the ground, that to change a reality, there's no amount of rhetoric and there's no amount of negotiations and there's no amount of changing things from a standoff position. It won't work. If you send boots on the ground, you create facts on the ground. And that is what is beginning to dawn on Hamas, I think, and beginning to dawn across much of the Arab world, that Israel is now in the process of taking over Gaza. And I'd like your take on this because to me, what it seems is this kind of bookends what has happened over the last five weeks. Because five weeks ago, in a stunning coup, a, a bloody coup, a terrorist coup, Hamas managed to create their own facts on the ground, which is to put the Palestinian issue back on the center of the world in tray and the table, so much so that the two-state solution is being talked once again. That's a stunning coup. And to undo that coup, the IDF in Israel needs to do something equally strong, which is to create facts on the ground the other way. That's the way I see what's happening at the moment. As far as what's going on at Shifa Hospital, what Israel needs to do first is to evacuate the babies, evacuate the sick people so that we can't be accused of uh, a slaughter. And then after that, the army has to, in the right way, go underground and destroy the Hamas infrastructure that they've built up over the years. And that would be a major military victory for Israel. As far as the return of the two-state solution to the world stage, so we saw that in a couple of places yesterday. We saw that in the Arab summit in Saudi Arabia, which I thought was a bit scary to see people like Bashar Assad and Abraham Raisi of Iran shaking hands with Saudi Arabian leaders as if they're all friends and buddies. And I think Israel has to be wary. And we have to understand that even with all of the talk about Saudi Arabia joining the Abraham Accords and all of the other countries that have already joined, we have to understand that these people are not our friends. And this is all a matter of interest. It's all a matter of politics. And we shouldn't uh, allow ourselves to get carried away in, in either direction. And I think that's another reason why at a news conference last night at the Kirya, Prime Minister Netanyahu made it very clear to a questioner that the Palestinian Authority is not going to come into Gaza to control Gaza after Israel, Bezrat Hashem, eradicates Hamas. I do want to say also that Netanyahu twice said Bezrat Hashem during his presentation last night, uh, so did uh, Benny Gantz. So, you know, they understand exactly who uh, needs to be behind us in this. But Netanyahu made it very clear. He didn't say Palestinian authority by name, but he said, we won't let any authority who is educating their children to kill Jews, to hate Jews, and who are paying terrorists to kill Jews and make more money the more Jews they kill. There's no way we're letting those kind of people in to rule Gaza after we're done with what we need to do. And he was so strong about that, that the U.S. actually asked him for a clarification about it. And I hope he did clarify by repeating exactly what he said last night at the news conference, that we're not going to let it happen. With all due respect to President Biden and uh, Secretary of State Blinken, you have to come up with a different idea. We'll work with you on it, but it's not going to be Hamas. It's not going to be the PA. Interesting, Benjamin, I just want to take you up on a few points over there. Number one was, I can't resist that you mentioned Bibi and, and, and Gantz both talking about Bezrat Hashem. 
happens to be a couple of months ago that Benny Gantz came to Mishpacha's offices, headquarters, and I challenged him on the politics of the time of the fact that in many ways, the left wing, which was then busy undermining Israel's standing internationally in the justice reform crisis as it was then. And I said, listen, you've become like Natura Karata and like Satma. They're demonstrating outside the Israeli embassy in New York. And he'd learned to be a politician by then because he sidestepped. And this was his rejoinder every now and he said, you mentioned Satma. Let me tell you about my cousins who live in Mir Sharim was Satma. So I think that Gantz is both a politician nowadays, not just a former soldier, but he's also someone who the whole religious life is not a stranger to. I'm not surprised to hear that there's Rav Hashem over there. But just to back up on something you said over here, which was the distress or worry to see the butchers of the Arab world standing aside, those who are ostensibly warming ties to Israel, you know, the Gulf leaders, et cetera, at, the, at that conference yesterday. I think it's clear that from 40 years of peace with Egypt and Jordan, et cetera, there will never be warmth. They are them, we are us, they are the Arab world, we are Jews. And that is clear. But A, we've come a long way from when in 1973, the Saudis sent troops to do battle with Israel, number one. And number two, I think the key measure when it comes to the Arab states and the Muslim world in general is they respect strength. They respect strength. There's nothing that invites attack from those direction as a sense Jewish blood is in the water. And then the sharks start circling. I think what, therefore, Israel has to do is ignore the kind of rhetoric that's communicated yesterday in which Mohammed bin Salman, crown prince, is effective leader of Saudi Arabia. He's condemned Israeli aggression and war crimes, but Barak Mexico by the occupation government, which is the final communicate of the meeting yesterday, obviously, which had to be passed by the Saudis. That will never go away. What has to be remembered is the fact that they're not imposing an oil embargo as they did in 1973, they're not sending troops. And moreover, they actually secretly back channel want Israel to finish the job. And so that's something that's respected. And so just as I think, let's tie this into what we've been going on in the Western world, Jews across the Western world, whether it's in in Paris, in in France, where there's 400,000 Jews who are very, 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 very worried. And in London, in England in general, Jews are very fearful and they would not go into large areas of London yesterday, or they couldn't go anywhere because of the Shabbos, but there's large areas where they are because of the anti-Israel protests nowadays. But at the same time, there has to be balance. The fear for the Jewish communities overseas has to be balanced with the need to display resolve and strength across the Arab world. And I think that's what's going to have to be the modus operandi going forward. What are your thoughts, Bignon? I think it's important to express moral clarity throughout all this. And you're 100% right that things are much better vis-a-vis Israel and the Arab world than it was 40, 50 years ago. You're right, there's no oil embargo and it's all talk and no action. So what I would like to see at some point in the near future is some of these Arab nations who are interested in relations with Israel coming straight out and saying, listen, we have to break with the past. That's what Anwar Sadat did. That's what made him great. He basically said, I'm coming to Jerusalem, I'm suing for peace, and we're dropping the battle against Israel. It's over. And he ended up getting all of the Sinai Peninsula back. And and he ended up getting assassinated. That's true. He ended up getting assassinated. But at a certain point, you have to basically get over those fears. You have to protect yourself a little bit better, not go out in an open parade like he did, thinking that uh, the army was going to protect him. And at a certain point, I believe that a lot of the other Arab world has to, if you will, do tshuva. And they have to come out and do it explicitly. Like we saw the Midrashim say in this last week's Parsha, where 
Yishmael basically gave Kadima, he gave the credit to Yitzchak and let him lead the procession at uh, the funeral of Avram Avinu. So at some point, the Arabs are going to have to come across and they're going to have to say, listen, we have to drop our claims. And until they do, then I don't think that the Middle East Arab-Israeli war will ever be settled. You know, and I think there's only one suitable way to end the podcast when you've teed that one up in such an inviting way. There's only three words. It's the words, And so may that swiftly arrive and I'll see you tomorrow.